Well, I am privileged to be able to bring uh, the message this weekend in the series that we've been in. And as I've been thinking about it, I've been thinking about all the questions that that I ask throughout the day, day day-to-day questions. You probably do too. And a lot of the questions I ask are pretty trivial when you get down to it. I mean, questions like, what shirt should I wear today? What should I have for lunch? When will pumpkin spice lattes be back? No, seriously, does anyone know? Okay, someone told me they already have them at one place. I won't say that place because we'd promote that place. But I'm actually moving that up to non-trivial. That's an important question. There are questions that are more important, that are bigger. Questions like, should I take that job? Should I, who should I marry? Um, should I make that purchase? Bigger questions. And then there are questions that cannot be answered. Like, like how can I understand women? All the men said, amen. It's because we're simple, ladies. We're just simple. It's our our problem. Um, Then there's big questions. Big questions like, why why am I alive in this place at this point in history? Could have been born anywhere, anytime. But I was born when I was, and I'm here at this point. Why? Is there meaning behind that? Is there purpose? Is there a God? What is he like? Does he want to interact with me? Bigger questions. Well, we're in a study, as you know, called Eyewitness News. And we're going through the book of Mark. And we called it Eyewitness News because Mark, it flows like a newscast, kind of. I mean, it's just snippets of action. Mark is filled with action. If you read an event in Mark, and that same event is recorded in, say, Matthew or Luke, most likely Matthew or Luke will have way more detail because Mark is just... It's kind of action, just one snip, snapshot after another of the life of Jesus and what he was about. And today our text in Mark brings us to what I believe is the most important question that we could ever answer in our lives. And that's what we're going to look at, okay? And so we're going to kind of go verse by verse and spend a little time on each one. So if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 8 and verse 27. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. It will be up there. Here's what it says. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Now, think about what's happened. If you were here last weekend, Pastor Derry talked to us about a story that happens right before this, where Jesus goes into a town, a village called Bethsaida, and encounters a blind guy. Okay, and he takes the blind guy and he leads him uh, out of the village and he spits in the guy's eyes and then he places his hands on the guy and the guy can see, sort of, right? Do you remember? And, And he can see blurry. It's like when you take your contacts out, those of you that wear contacts. And Jesus says, what do you see? And the guy says, well, I see people, but they look like trees moving around. I've been blind. Maybe that's what they're supposed to look like, but I don't think so. So Jesus touches him again, and all of a sudden he can see clearly. Okay? That's significant to what we're going to look at today, but that's what's just happened. And so it says that Jesus then leads the disciples out of Bethsaida, where that happened, and they're on their way to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles north of Bethsaida. Pretty good clip when you're walking in sandals. Okay? So they got a long trek. And, and so you got Bethsaida on the north edge of the Sea of Galilee. Um, Caesarea Philippi is up by Mount Hermon. 
and so it's a good trek. They're kind of climbing, and so they're on the way to go to this place, which actually is known for idol worship. It's a center for Baal worship, and then would actually be named after the Greek god Pan. It actually became named uh, Panius, and so it's this center of idol worship. That's where they're headed, predominantly Gentile areas where they're going, and Mark says that on the way, Jesus asks a question, who do people say that I am? Now, I want to pause there because I think this gives us something very important for our lives. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Discipleship happens primarily on the way. Discipleship happens primarily on the way. There were those times when Jesus gathered a big crowd and he would teach the crowd. Okay, we see that when he had to get in the boat and push off from the shore because the crowd was so big and he taught them from the boat. We see it when he fed, you know, thousands of people. It's because he had been teaching them all day. And there were times when he gathered a big crowd. But discipleship, or the word Pastor Brent uses, which I really like, is the word apprenticeship. This idea of ongoing formation into the image of Jesus happened primarily in their lives as they were on the way with Jesus and with each other. Wherever they went, on the way, their lives began to change. In fact, did you know that the early followers of Jesus were not called Christians? That wasn't what they were called. They actually called themselves people of the way. That's how they referred to themselves. It was actually unbelievers who started calling them Christians. They were people on the way with the one who claimed to be the way. So what does that have to do with us today? Well, let me just encourage you and challenge you a little bit with this. What we do here each weekend for 60 to 65 minutes, depending on who's speaking, <laughs> and you'll know where I fall when you leave today. You'll see, okay? What we do here each weekend, this weekend experience, is, is wonderful and necessary and powerful, okay? Some unique things happen. When we gather together corporately to worship God, we worship him through music, which we've been doing. Thank God for this gift of music that gives us this way to express corporately together our heart towards God. We worship him through using our gifts and serving, all these different gifts that are at play to make this happen. We worship him through the teaching of, of scripture and through giving and through corporate prayer. Something powerful and unique happens when we come together to corporately worship God. In fact, I always love it when people come who, have, who haven't been to church maybe in a long time or maybe never. I mean, you realize there are adult people in our city who have never, ever been to church, ever. And it's always interesting when they come to, to hear their experience. I've heard people say, when I came in, I just, I just began to cry. I don't even know why. I was so overcome with emotion, I just began to cry because there's something that happens corporately in the presence of God and we're worshiping him together. Other people I know, I actually have a friend in her 20s who visited a while back and it kind of freaked her out because she's, I mean, where else do you go to a place like what we do here together for this hour where everyone stands up and we sing songs together? Some of you radical people go like this. You know, I mean, I mean, think about that. Someone who's never seen or experienced anything and we're seeing and the words are on the screen and we're seeing, I mean, it's a different experience, but it's powerful. What happens? This experience becomes a catalyst in our lives. That's how I see it. 
There, I would venture to say that some of you sitting in this room right now, a weekend experience was the catalyst for you to decide. You came to a place of faith where you said, I am going to follow Jesus. I'm going to begin a journey with him. For some of you, it's where you began a journey to be free from addiction or a journey to heal a relationship or whatever it might be. The weekend experience was a catalyst to change the trajectory of your life. It's important. It's necessary. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, don't stop doing that. Don't forsake that assembling together of yourselves. But let me say this. If the weekend service is the sum total of your spiritual diet, you will be severely malnourished in your walk with God. As blessed as we are to have a senior pastor like Pastor Derry and to have people like Pastor Jeff and Pastor Dick, as blessed as we are, if this is the sum total, you will be unhealthy in your growth as a follower of Jesus. It would almost be like you finding a great restaurant that has a great Sunday brunch, and, and so you go to that restaurant, and it has everything you like, you love it so much, and you decide, every Sunday I'm coming here to eat. Well, that's great, but what if you decided, in fact, I love it so much and it's so good, I'm not gonna eat the whole rest of the week. I'm only gonna eat on Sunday mornings, once a week. It doesn't matter how great the brunch is, you're going to be unhealthy. It doesn't matter if they have all four of the major food groups like meat and dairy and vegetables and cinnamon rolls. Even if they have all, what? Even if they have all of that, you're not going to be healthy. And so, so there's other, you know, other opportunities we try to provide through the ministries of Timberline. Like Wednesday nights, we talked about an opportunity to grow. Small groups. Great opportunity. We're going to launch here in just a few weeks uh, a big opportunity for you to be in a small group that will follow along with the weekend series and Bible studies and classes and things like that. And those are great, and they're wonderful, and they're important, and I hope you'll take advantage of them. But even that would be like, well, coming back to the restaurant two or three times a week. The reality is if you're going to be healthy, you're going to have to pick up a pan and learn how to cook. Because you need to eat every day. And the same is true spiritually. We have to be disciplined in our lives to learn how to eat from God's word, from our relationship with him. We have to put ourselves in environments where growth can happen, develop relationships where others will spur us on to be more like Jesus, and practice those disciplines that will position us in a way that God can work deep in our lives. In other words, we have to be on the way with Jesus each and every day of our lives, being self-feeders into our own soul and spirit, okay? So Jesus asks them as they're on their way, who do other people say that I am? Look at their response in verse 28. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Now that's important because that gives us insight into what people were thinking about Jesus, okay? And it's not a picture of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I mean, there, some think it's John the Baptist come back from the dead. Some think he's Elijah who's come down from heaven or one of the other prophets. Well, when you read about prophets, prophets were the ones who fearlessly declared the truth of God. 
They confronted kings and called nations to turn and go a new direction. And that's how people are seeing Jesus, one who speaks the truth and the heart of God to people, calling them to a new way. That's how they view Jesus. But then Jesus turns the conversation. I'm going to use my whiteboard. Jesus turns the conversation to a most important question. Jesus says, what about you? Find what those other people say, but what about you? Look at verse 29. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now think about what's happened up to this point. If you've been following this series, if you've been reading the Gospel of Mark, there have been numerous occasions after Jesus does something great, some kind of miracle, that Jesus sits down with his disciples and he says things like, are you so dull? Do you still not understand and see? After feeding thousands of people with a few loaves of bread and a few fish, Jesus sits with his disciples and says, do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? He leads the blind man out of Bethsaida and he spits on his eyes and he touches him and he asks the question, do you see anything? The disciples are there and maybe even looked at them like, are you getting this? Do you see anything? Well, kind of. So Jesus touches him again and then he can see, he can see clearly. See, Jesus is trying to get them to see something they're not seeing. Last weekend, we called the message, I can see clearly now. This weekend, we called the message, on the road, again. Because again, Jesus is trying to get them to see something that up till this point, they haven't been able to see. So he takes them on the way again. And just like he touched the blind man a second time, when he could kind of see, on the way to this city that is known for idol worship, the disciples start to see more clearly. They start to get it. And Peter, no surprise, is the spokesman. And Peter says, you are the Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean when Peter says you are the Christ? It's important that we understand what that means. That's a very Jewish thing to say, and if we're not careful, we'll blow right past it and not get how big this is. Most commentators say this is the turning point in the Gospel of Mark. This is key right here. See, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Okay, some people think his first name's Jesus, his last name is Christ. And I've even heard some people think that his middle name starts with the letter H. I don't know where that, I don't understand that. Some of you are like, what? We're not gonna unpack that, okay. <laughs> Christ is not a name, it's not a name, it's a title. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Okay, that's where it comes from. And Messiah has lots of meaning, all right? So we're gonna go to school for just, just a minute, okay? Because it's really important that we get this and understand this. Many Jews in Jesus' day, and actually, actually in today's world, for that matter, were anticipating the day that God, that God would send his anointed one. That's what the word Messiah literally means, anointed one. God would send his anointed one, and that anointed one would become king. All right? And he would be a king in the line of the great King David, and there would be three things that this king would address primarily, three things that would happen. 
okay? The first one had to do with the temple, okay? Now, understand the temple was, was believed to be the place where heaven and earth came together, okay? The dwelling of God and the dwelling of man came together. They viewed in the temple in the most tangible way. It was the expression of God's kingdom on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught us to pray, all right? And so they believed that the Messiah, the king, would, would rebuild or cleanse the temple, okay? The second thing had to do with their enemies, okay? And their immediate enemy in Jesus' day was Rome. Rome was oppressing them. They believed that this king, God's anointed one, would defeat the enemies, all the enemies of God's people, okay? The third thing had to do with justice. They believed this king... Would, would mete out the justice of God, not only in Israel, but throughout the world, okay? In other words, this king would not just be Israel's king, he would be king of kings, king of all kings, king of the world. That's what they believed. That's what they were anticipating in, in the Messiah, this anointed one that God would send. So understand this. Here's the point. The point is that when Peter says, you are the Christ, he's not just saying that now there's a way for me to have a private personal relationship with God and go to heaven when I die. That's part of it. But Peter's talking about a revolution. When Peter says out loud, you are the Christ, he's saying something extremely dangerous. There had been other people who had come along and said they were the Messiah, and they had been violently crushed by Rome along with all their followers because Rome deals severely with revolutionaries. So for Peter to say this, he was announcing a revolution. It may have even been that they had suspected this, but for him to say it out loud, you can understand why Jesus said, don't tell anyone about me. Don't say this to anyone. See, because what they didn't understand was that Jesus would do all of this in a very different way. What they didn't see was that the way to that crown was through the cross. And that's what he's going to talk about in the next text. We'll look at it next weekend. All right? They, they didn't see that fully. All right? And so here's how Jesus addressed these, just real quickly, and then, we're gonna, then we'll get back. Are you still with me? Say yes. Yeah. All right. Eee, 50%. Okay. All right. We'll hurry. All right? Here's how he dealt with the temple. Okay? You remember when Jesus went into the temple and he turned over the money changing tables? He cleansed the temple. That was a brief interruption in the whole, the whole sacrificial system that was happening in the temple. I mean, they got back, they put the tables back up, and they went right back to what they were doing. But it was a symbolic statement of judgment on the temple and its corruption. All right? And he even, he even prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. And it was. In 70 AD, Rome came in and destroyed the temple. Okay? So not only did Jesus pronounce judgment on the temple, Jesus actually, in effect, reconstituted the temple. And here, here's what I mean by that. What Jesus taught and what Jesus did, especially his miracles... His miracles had a double ring to them. Not only were they a blessing to the people he touched, but they announced what his kingdom was about. And, and so what Jesus taught and what Jesus did basically was announcing that the place where heaven and earth come together, where the dwelling of God and the dwelling of people come together, is in him. That's what you see in Jesus. 
what he does. What, what he's demonstrating on the earth is the kingdom of heaven breaking forth in the realm of humanity in the person of Jesus. Now, that was wild, but you know what's even more wild than that? Is later, Paul would write that we, followers of Jesus, you and me, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul would say. That's, that's big, okay? So that's how he dealt with the temple. They didn't see it like it was going to be that way, but that's how he dealt with the temple. The enemies, he didn't destroy Rome. In fact, you know what Jesus called them to do with Rome? Love them. He said, love your enemies. You know the whole saying, an extra mile? That comes from where Jesus said, if, if someone asks you to carry their, their, their load, all right, which was a Roman guard, had the right to come and demand that you carry their load for one mile. Jesus said, take it for two miles. In other words, you love those enemies. So Jesus didn't destroy Rome. You know what Jesus did? He defeated the ultimate enemy of all of God's people and all of God's creation, which was death. Death was the ultimate enemy. And Jesus defeated death through his own death and resurrection from the dead. So death has been defeated. That's why Paul would write later, quoting Isaiah and Hosea, two Old Testament prophets, he would write, but, but what Jesus did, death has been swallowed up in victory. And, and in this outburst of jubilation, you can see it in the writing. Paul says, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Swallowed up, Jesus defeated that enemy. As it relates to justice, you know what his plan was? This is where it gets really cool. His plan for justice was that he would call out a people. All right, the word ekklesia is the Greek word. You know what the word that is? Church. It means called out ones. He would call out a people. That's you and me. Empower those people with his spirit, and they would live out the justice of God. They would live their lives in a way that demonstrates what it looks like when God is king. And you know what happened yesterday in North Fort Collins? That, the church, empowered by his spirit, when God's in charge, hungry people get fed. Poor people are valued and, and loved and cared for. People who need clothes get clothes. That's what it looks like when God's in charge. That's the vocation of the church, that we would be the expression of God's kingdom on earth. Okay, I got to hurry or I'm going to be in that second category of 65 minutes. Okay. All right, so coming back to this, all right? Uh, I don't even know where I'm at. Hang on. Okay, here we go. So still today, there are many opinions about who Jesus is. Some say he was a prophet. That was it. Some say he was a good moral teacher who said some things that are worth considering, made some great suggestions about life, all right? Some people would say that. Some say he was a revolutionary that failed, just like every other revolutionary in that day, he was executed, and that's where the story ends. He's dead and gone. But the biggest question and the most important question is, what about you? What about you? Jesus turns to each of us and says, who do you believe that I am? Who do you say? That I am. See, if you're, again, if you're taking notes, discipleship has a personal side. It has a personal side. Yes, it's on the way with Jesus and on the way with other followers of Jesus, but its personal side is that no one can answer that question for you. 
You have to answer that yourself. And at the end of the day, it's not what your parents say. It's not what your professor says. It's not what the media tells us. It's, it's, none of, it's what do you say? Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you declare him to be? Is he merely an historical figure who had good things to say and good suggestions? Or is he king? Is he Lord? Some of you may be here today and you're saying, I'm not real sure. I'm intrigued by Jesus. I'm exploring Jesus and the claims of Jesus. And I just want to encourage you to continue that exploration with an open heart. Because if we were to read this story in Matthew, the same story, in Matthew, when Peter says, you are the Christ, and in Matthew, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you are blessed because human beings have not revealed this to you. My father in heaven revealed this to you. That's an important piece in this. Look at what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter one and verse 17. It should be on the screen. Paul prays this prayer. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you, notice this, the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Then look at verse 18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. The third thing in your outline there is that Discipleship requires revelation. There's a revelation piece in answering the question, who do you say Jesus is? It is by no means a blind faith. It's not a blind faith, but it definitely is faith. And it seems that the key is our heart. Jesus used the metaphor of soil. What kind of soil does the truth encounter when it comes? And it seems like if you read through the Gospels, to hearts that were hungry, Jesus revealed himself and the kingdom. To hearts that were hard, they couldn't see him. His parables, his parables both revealed truth and concealed truth. They did both. And the issue was the heart. If there was a heart that hungered for truth, that wanted to see him, his parables actually revealed truth. If their hearts were hard, they actually concealed truth. Jesus often talked about this idea of having eyes to see and ears to hear. So as we kind of wrap up our thoughts this morning, I want to focus on two things. The first and most important, the question that we've been talking about, who do you say Jesus is? Do you today have a heart that wants to see him, that wants to know him, a heart to know the truth and to know his kingdom? Maybe for some of you, this is the day, this is the moment where you, for maybe the first time, will, in effect, out loud say, he's king, he's my king. And you'll give your life to follow Jesus. Maybe this is that day of faith. Maybe for some of you, you're at a place of just committing yourself to a genuine journey of discovering who Jesus is. For some of you, that's been tough because you've created an image in your mind of who Jesus is based on the people you've encountered who are supposed to represent him and haven't done so very well. 
And I just want to say to you, I'm sorry about that encounter or encounters, but I also want to lovingly encourage you that there's too much at stake for you to stay stuck there. I want to invite you to authentically explore who Jesus is because no matter where you're at on your journey, if you have a heart that wants to see him, he will meet you where you are and he wants to reveal himself to you himself, not through the lens of imperfect people. So continue that pursuit and that search. Secondly, I want to pray for those of you who maybe have recognized that in your walk with God, you are just stalled. You're stuck. Maybe you're realizing that you've been trying to depend on on someone else to constantly feed you, and you realize you just need to pick up a fork and eat yourself. That you need to put yourself in environments and relationships and practice disciplines that will spur you on to growth, to be stretched by God so that he can begin to do that work that's deep inside of you so you can get on the way with him again. I want to pray for you too. All right, so would you just bow your heads with me, please, and we're going to close. As we go to prayer, I just want to ask, if, if you're here today and you would say, I'm in that first category, and maybe for the first time, or maybe you did this a long time ago, but you've walked far away from God, and you would say, I just believe this is a moment for me of faith. I want to give my life to Jesus. I do trust and believe what he did. I don't know everything. I don't have all my questions answered, but I do believe that Jesus died and rose again, that he defeated death, and that he made a way for me to be forgiven of everything that separates me from God. And I want to trust my life to him and begin following him. I'm giving my life to Jesus today. If that's you, with heads bowed and eyes closed, would you just raise your hand and say, include me in this prayer because that's what I'm doing today. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. You can put them right back down. How many of you would say, I'm kind of in that second category, and I know in my walk with God, I am just stalled. I'm stuck for whatever reason, but that there, you are determining today, and you're saying, include me in this prayer because I know that needs to change, and I'm going to make changes in my life to put myself in the places that I need to be so that I can get on the way again and begin growing again. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Say, that's me. Thank you. Thanks for your honesty. Thank you. You can put them right back down. God, you see our hands to both questions. You know our hearts. You knew before we ever raised our hands, but there's something in our response that is kind of a symbolic statement of our faith that believes you can help us. And so, God, I ask you for those who in this room, this moment, they are trusting you for the forgiveness of sin, turning from living for themselves and surrendering to you as king and Lord of their lives. Thank you for new life. Thank you for the journey that is beginning in them of following you and being transformed by you at the core of who they are. And God, for those who have acknowledged that they're just stuck in this journey, I thank you for the realization and I thank you for a resolve in their hearts to say, I am gonna make the commitments I need to make. I'm gonna be willing to be stretched, whatever that means, in in community, in serving, so that I can be in an environment where God, you can continue to work on my heart. I'm going to commit myself to practicing disciplines, to be connected to you on a daily basis so that my life is growing and being transformed more to look like you. 
Lord, I thank you for loving us the way that you do. We give you honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. And so God, send us out of this wonderful experience of corporate worship together into the world to which you've called us. And may we be the expression of your kingdom. May we live out your love, your care, your passion in this world so that when people encounter us, they have encountered Jesus in a very real way. God, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have a need that you want someone to pray with you about, we have a prayer team that would love to meet with you and pray for you. If you gave your life to Jesus, we have a packet we'd love to put in your hands. There's some up here or some at guest services. Otherwise, God bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.